morning again. Hope this is a good sermon. You about had Jason's take on this passage. Um, the getting arrested part of that, that's true. This, it's not hyperbole. We were driving back from Texas yesterday, 45 minutes from Tulsa, chatting, coming off the Indian Nations Turnpike, 75 miles an hour is the speed limit I was driving, and uh, we get to Henrietta, and it goes from 75 to 45 pretty quickly. Well, I didn't, but the, the speed limit did. And, uh, yeah, he pulled me over and he says, you realize I could arrest you. You were going 74 and a 45, and uh, that's reckless driving. And so uh, I said, I didn't realize that, but I do now. <laughs> so uh, we were just laughing about it, thinking, uh, Jason, what would you have done if, if I was in the hooskow, the, the pokey, uh, overnight? And he says, well, I'd have called Kimba to come bail you out, but I wouldn't. I was taking off uh, <laughs> and writing a sermon last night. That was just one of many stories this weekend. It was a comedy of errors. Um, but we're, we're thankfully past that. We're going to look this morning at Acts 4, verse 32, all the way through chapter 5, verse 11. So Acts 4, 32, through chapter 5, verse 11. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one from the pew rack. And uh, this passage begins on page 912. Let me pray for us, and then we'll read God's word together. Heavenly Father, uh, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word remains forever because it is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And your word works. It just simply works. And so I pray that your word would work by the power of the Spirit within us and among us today. That as we see uh, the church growing and doing what Christians are called to do, and yet we see a positive example and a negative example, and, and ultimately we see Jesus in the midst of that. Help us to run to him in faith. Help us to live by the power of the Spirit for his glory, for your glory, for our good. In Christ's name, amen. All right, Acts 4, beginning in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon all of them, all of the Christians. And there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. And thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, this Barnabas sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? 
You have not lied to men, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. And the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard these things. May God write his word upon our hearts. Understatement of all time, great fear came upon the whole church. Um, you know, as I was reading this passage, part of, part of me wishes that I could have saved this sermon for the end of the year when we always need to make a final push for budget. Or, or that I just could have saved it, skipped over it and saved it for some day when we launch a capital fundraising campaign. This is the perfect sermon for that. It gets our attention, doesn't it? This is a crazy passage. As I was reading and writing this sermon this week, I had this scene standing right down here in front of the communion table just before the benediction saying this, so friends of CPC, we have ushers waiting at the back to receive your financial gifts, or... We have another door with some strong men waiting. It's your choice. <laughs> Don't hold back, or it might be the last thing you do. This is a crazy passage, but, but it's not really about God getting what's his one way or the other. It's not what it's about. It's about the generosity of God that seeps into our hearts and leaks out from our hands. It's about the grace of God that takes root in our lives and makes us a generous people. That's what it's about. So before we dive in, uh, I want you to understand, and I haven't referenced this in a couple of weeks, but in, in the book of Acts, there are passages that are descriptive and there are passages that are prescriptive. And what that means is, is sometimes it's just history. It's telling us what the early church was like, and sometimes there are passages telling us this is what you, Christians, some 2,000 years later, should be like. And this passage is both. This passage describes the generosity of the early church. It tells us how, how generous and gracious and giving and sacrificial these Christians were, but it also prescribes how we should be a generous church and how we should be generous to the church. And so with, with that in mind, that it, it both tells us what happened and what should still happen, I have three things that I want you to consider. First, Generosity begins with the gospel. Generosity begins with the gospel. When you're, uh, when you're reading this passage, verse 33 seems out of place. It, it really does. V verse 33 is, is sandwiched between uh, two verses, the, the first about generous giving, the second about sac or generous sharing, the second about sacrificial giving. And the, he, uh, Luke is describing the, the giving, the sacrifice, the, the, the commonality they had. And then right in the midst of that, sandwiched between these two very similar things, we're told that the apostles testified to the resurrection of Jesus and great grace was upon all the Christians. Friends, 30, verse 33 is not out of place, it's purposeful. 
our generosity is rooted in the generosity of Jesus. It's rooted in the gospel with, with the resurrection as the climax. God generously gave his one and only son for you and for me. Jesus took on human flesh. He didn't hold anything back. Jesus lived a sinless life, the life that, that you and I were commanded to live, should have lived. He died a substitutionary, sacrificial death for us. And what that means is that, that he died the death that we should have died. And Paul says he took our sin, became sin, and then he rose from the grave. We're going to consider that in a few weeks on Easter. He rose from the grave in victory. And Paul says that the resurrection secures our justification. What that means is that when Jesus rose from the dead, he gave us his righteousness. From, from, from the very moment he was born to the very moment that he left this earth after the resurrection, what do we see in Jesus? He gave. He gave. He gave. Generosity begins with the gospel. The only way that you and I as, as followers of Jesus will be a generous people is when we have truly grasped how generous our God is, that he gave. It's the most well-known verse in scripture, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he, he gave. He gave, he gave. I, I wanna be careful here um, to avoid communicating what, what John Piper has called a debtor's ethic. And so a debtor's ethic says this, God has done so much for you, now what will you do for him? That's one version of it. Or, or God has given you so much, now what will you give to him? There's a couple of problems with a debtor's ethic, at least two. First, it puts us on par with God and leads us to think that we can in some way repay God for his grace and mercy to us. It may be subtle, but it leads to us thinking, God has done so much for you, now what will you do for him? And subtly but slowly, what creeps in is that we can, in fact, repay God for his grace and mercy to us. But listen, there isn't anything anything that we can ever do. There isn't any amount of money that we can ever give that will approach repaying God for what he has done for us in Jesus. But the second problem, which is similar to the first, the second problem with the debtor's ethic is that it will always slip into a form of works righteousness. We should be generous as Christians. We should give sacrificially. But but if we embrace a debtor's ethic, we will not give freely and generously from the motivation of grace. We'll turn giving into a form of merit. We'll turn giving into a means of righteousness. And so let me put it like this. Generosity, Christian generosity, is rooted in the gospel. It's driven by the gospel, but it is, it is never payment for the gospel. Several weeks ago, we, uh, we took just a moment to consider spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts, those are the, the gifts that are given to Christians by the Holy Spirit, and they're for the benefit of one another, for the benefit of the church. 
And in Romans 12, Paul says that one of the Holy Spirit's gifts, one of the spiritual gifts, is generosity. One of the spiritual gifts that's given to us is is the gift of contributing generously. And so what that means is that some Christians, not all, some Christians have the gift of teaching, some Christians have the gift of mercy, some Christians have the gift of helps, some Christians have the gift of prophecy in in the sense of speaking forth. But some Christians have the gift of giving generously. The Holy Spirit equips them to be amazingly generous. But generosity is not merely a gift that is given to some Christians. Generosity is an outworking of the gospel. It's an outworking of the gospel. And that means that everyone who has been transformed by the gospel is called to be generous. And so here's what we can't say. You know, uh, some of you, may, I don't know what your spiritual gift is, but you say, well, I don't have the gift of teaching. And so if Jason approaches you and says, hey, would you, would you like to consider, would you prayerfully consider leading this class or this study? You say, hey, I don't have the gift of teaching. But this morning when I call on you to be generous, you can say, I don't have the gift of generosity. Because generosity is an outworking of the gospel, and everyone who has received the gospel is called to be generous. Do you know that throughout history, Christians have been known for being absurdly generous? Absurd. We see it here in Acts 4. They're they're selling their possessions. They're they're selling off property. They're cashing in their stocks. They're having everything in common. Not a single one has need. They're, They're laying their things before the apostles' feet. We see the absurd generosity of the church here in Acts 4. We We see it in 2 Corinthians 8. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul writes that that the Macedonian churches overflowed with a wealth of generosity, giving in spite of their poverty. They were one of the most impoverished churches and yet one of the most generous churches. In the centuries that follow, we continue to see the church's generosity. In the fourth century, Emperor Julian wrote that the impious Galileans, that was his He was descriptor for Christians. The impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All throughout history, the church was at the forefront. As the most generous people, opening orphanages, hospitals, sending missionaries and money across the globe. Even today, uh, Deb Spencer, who leads Sister India, Uh, Going and ministering to young women, taking resources and equipping these young women, trying to lead them out of sex trafficking and those sort of uh, conditions. This is a Christian woman. This is a Christian ministry. This This is the church at the forefront of being generous with their time. There was a recent study from the the University of uh, Indiana's Lilly School of Philanthropy. The University of Indiana, Lilly School of Philanthropy. And this study revealed that Christians are three times more generous than non-Christians. Where does that come from? Have, Have we just done a really good job of guilting one another into that? Why are Christians so generous? Why do we give our time to help one another? And our gifts to serve one another, and our money to support one another? Here's the answer. Because the generosity of God displayed in the gospel and applied by the Spirit 
has seeped into our hearts, and then it leaks out from our hands. The generosity of God displayed in the gospel seeps into our hearts and leaks out from our hands. Here's a second thought. Generosity is a mark of spiritual maturity. Generosity is a mark of spiritual maturity. So one of the ways to read this passage is a contrast between the true generosity of Barnabas and the feigned generosity of Ananias and Sapphira. So Barnabas is held up. Barnabas is put forth as a model of true generosity, but also as an example of spiritual maturity. And so I want to take just a moment to explore explore Barnabas. Barnabas became a pretty prominent figure in the early church. So Barnabas, like Stephen, who we'll be introduced to in a chapter or so, uh, he was a Greek-speaking Jew who returned to Jerusalem and began following Jesus. Clement of Alexandria wrote that Barnabas was one of the 70 that was sent out by Jesus in Luke chapter 10. There's, there's really no corroboration for that. The Bible doesn't tell us that specifically, but he was, he was uh, known as that historically. Bar- Barnabas was a devout Christian. He became a leader in the early church in just a handful of chapters. We'll see that Barnabas was only one of a few men who immediately accepted and embraced Paul. Paul had gained this reputation prior to his conversion for being, uh, for being a persecutor of Christians. Many of the Christians were afraid of him. They didn't want to have anything to do with him. But Barnabas and only a couple others recognized the Spirit's power within him, and they embraced, they embraced him. Later, Barnabas began to travel with Paul on missionary journeys. We know that he went on at least the first and second missionary journey with Paul. Barnabas accompanied Paul to Jerusalem for the council in Acts 15. And Acts 15 verse 12 tells us that the the leaders of the church gave Barnabas equal respect to Paul. So that tells you a little bit about Barnabas the man. He was a a well-respected leader of the church. He was a spiritually mature man. Some, like Tertullian, have suggested that Barnabas was the author of Hebrews. Uh, It's been historically received that Barnabas wrote a non-canonical book. That means it was not recognized as Scripture, but it's called the Epistle of Barnabas. And I tell you all of that so that you can understand Barnabas, this guy that we're we're just introduced to for a moment here. He was a solid Christian. He was a mature Christian. He was a Christian uh, leader, and he was held up as a model of generosity. And so in verse 37, we learn that Barnabas, he sold a parcel of property and he gave the proceeds to the apostles to use for ministry. Now, the interesting thing is that there were other Christians doing the same thing. There were other Christians who were similarly generous. We see in verse 34, there were many landowners, many property owners who sold their possessions and donated it to the apostles for the use of ministry and mission. And so why was Barnabas singled out? Why was his name mentioned? He was singled out because because we know from later that he was a spiritually mature believer. His generosity is put forth as an example of spiritual maturity. Friends, there, there are many markers of spiritual maturity and spiritual growth. There there are many ways that we can examine our lives and, and, and look for spiritual growth. The Holy Spirit works in many ways to grow us in faith and in practice. But one of the specific ways 
is abundant generosity for the church and to the church. If we just extend this out a bit further, what I'm saying, friends, is that we should be able to examine our lives and to examine our generosity and discern if we are, in fact, growing in faith and practice. We may read our Bible daily, pray regularly, attend Bible studies faithfully, but, but if we are not generous with our possessions, then it should give us pause. Because when the gospel is applied by the Spirit and has taken root in our hearts, it can't help but leak out from our hands. I want to be real quick to add, though. Generosity is not a specific dollar amount or even a huge dollar amount. And so I want to walk that line that's pretty thin here. And I want to say that generosity is a mark of spiritual maturity. Your giving and your generosity and sacrificial uh, giving to the church for the works of ministry is a mark of spiritual maturity, but it's not a specific dollar amount. A moment ago, I mentioned the Macedonians in 2 Corinthians 8. Paul writes, in their extreme poverty, they overflowed in a wealth of generosity. They gave according to their means. Do you remember the widow that Jesus held out as an example in Luke 21? This widow in Luke 21 gave two small copper coins. Uh, Jesus tells us that it was the equivalent of one 128th of a denarius. Denarius was a day's wage. So one 128th of a day's wage. In today's dollars, that would be 95 cents. She gave two small copper coins, the equivalent of 95 cents. Others were giving a lot more, but what did Jesus say at the end of that parable, or the end of that story? She put in more than them all. So it's not a huge dollar amount or a specific dollar amount. Several years ago, I, uh, I traveled to Togo, West Africa, and, um, and I met widows and single moms who worked as seamstresses and gardeners, and they make about $1.50 a week. At the time, I'm not sure, I haven't checked on this lately, Togo was the second poorest nation. $1.50 a week. And these women, the ones that I met, uh, they've come to faith in Jesus. They've plugged in to a church. They're part of a small group. And each week, these, these women meet for prayer. They meet for Bible study. And each week, they put in 25 cents or 50 cents. I mean, yesterday, Jason, we're, at, we're in Tyler and uh, it's lunchtime, and there's a food truck, a taco truck out on the street, and it begins to rain. The rain is just pelting, and so we're under this awning trying to stay dry while waiting in line for the taco truck. And about five feet away, there's a quarter, but it's out in the driving rain, and, and no one's picking it up. No one's stepping out from the cover to get that quarter. And that's how, we, that's how we look at things, right? It's a quarter. I'm not getting wet for a quarter. These ladies making $1.50 a week, giving 25 or 50 cents. The funny thing is, is I would talk to them. Of course, only a few of them spoke English. I don't speak whatever language they spoke. I discovered they know about as much Bible as a typical third grader who attends CPC Sunday school. That's their level of biblical knowledge. But their level of spiritual maturity is off the charts. Do not equate biblical knowledge with spiritual maturity. These ladies give. They give. They give. They overflow with the wealth of generosity. So it's not about a specific dollar amount. It's about a heart of abundant generosity. Here's the third thought. 
Generosity ends with the gospel. Generosity begins with the gospel. Generosity is a mark, not the only mark, but a mark of spiritual maturity. And generosity ends with the gospel. Ananias and Sapphira are an interesting couple. They're an interesting couple. Their names will forever be remembered for this crazy event. The feet of the men who took your husband out are here waiting for you. You know, on the surface, I don't know how familiar you are with this passage if you've read it many times. Maybe this is the first time you've heard it. It kind of seems like they got a raw deal, doesn't it? I mean, because, because what did they do? They did what, what many Christians do, even today. They sold some property. They gave a portion of the proceeds to church and took a nice little weekend vacation to Sonoma. That's how I read it. The funny thing is, they didn't have to sell their property. They didn't have to give any of it to the apostles. Peter makes that clear in chapter 5, verse 4. They didn't have to give any of it. So why were they struck dead? Friends, the issue with Ananias and Sapphira was not their giving or even the lack of giving everything. The issue was that they were trying to take glory and praise that wasn't theirs. The issue was not the gift. It was not even their greed. The issue was their hearts. Hearts that longed for, for others to look at them and praise them rather than looking at Jesus and praising him. The issue here in the end of this story is gospel glory. The gospel works. Do you believe that? The gospel works, and the message of the gospel is not what you have done for Jesus, but what Jesus has done for you. And the gospel works, and when the gospel begins to work itself out in practical ways, it's always meant to point back to Jesus. Do you understand that? That, that the gospel of what Christ has done for us it is an act, it's, it's an active message. It works, and when it begins to work itself out in life, it's always meant to point back to Jesus. And that's why I say the, that generosity ends with the gospel. I've heard so many testimonies over the years, gospel testimonies. Testimonies that make much of the one who was saved rather than the Savior. I call them cocaine to Christ testimonies. You've probably heard these. Someone stands up and they say, you know, I was a terrible person, but I found Jesus, and look at my life now. Now, now seriously, praise God when he transforms a life. I don't want to diminish that at all. I don't want to be flippant about that. Praise God when he transforms a life. But we should never say, look at my life now and how great I am. But we should say, look at Jesus. He took a sinner and made him a saint. Look at Jesus and how great he is. There's a stark contrast between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. Barnabas, he's, he's called the son of encouragement. He wasn't generous to be seen. He wasn't generous to get credit. He, he wasn't generous so that he would get name recognition and a sermon preached about him. 
He was generous because the gospel had truly taken root in his life. His generosity was because of the gospel, and it pointed back to the gospel. His generosity was from Jesus and then to Jesus. So we need to be careful that our generosity, it's it's rooted in the gospel, but it projects back to the gospel. It it gives Jesus glory and credit. And I want to call you, friends, I want to call you to generosity. Those of you who are members of CPC, those of you that have been around for any time, you know that, that we need, need and expect faithful giving so that we can make budget, so that we can support mission and ministry. And so I want to call you to generosity. I want to call you to give abundantly, to give to the needs of the church, even today as the deacons come forward, to give to those needs over and above the, the operating cost of the church, but to give to the diaconal fund to give abundantly, to give generously, to give in a way that is gospel-driven and Jesus-magnifying. And so I I nearly cut this line out. (laughs) I want you to give, but I want you to give for the right reasons. And part of me wanted to say, I want you to give. (laughs) What I'm saying is, please be generous to the church and for the needs of ministry, but don't give if it's for self-glory or self-gain. Don't. We don't want to be carting your bones out of here. <laughs> give. Give generously. Give abundantly. Give sacrificially, but not for self-glory or self-gain. Just hold it and don't give. Give because you have found the greatest gain in Jesus. Give because, because you have, have received the truly generous one, and you simply can't help but be generous. Let's pray towards that end. Father, you gave you gave, you gave. You gave Jesus. He gave his life. He gave his righteousness to us. And because of that and from that and through that, uh, we as his people, he's the head. He's the generous one. He's the head. We're the body. We can't help but give. We can't help but be generous. Whether it's to ministries and missions like Sister Indy that I mentioned a moment ago, whether it's with our time and dollars down to uh, Gathering Hearts for Honduras with the Coonies, as some will go uh, in weeks, or, or whether it's to CPC, and that should be a priority to give to the ministry and mission of, of this local body. Lord, make us, make us like what we see here in our forefathers. Make us a generous people where no one had needs. The apostles were funding ministry because the people were so generous, not, not in a way like Ananias and Sapphira for our own glory, not so that people would look at us and make much of us, but because we want people to make much of Jesus. Lord, do that work within us. We thank you for your grace and goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.